Well, you can turn to the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians 1, 17 through 23. The title of the message this morning is Seeing with My Heart. Seeing with My Heart. The series that we've been in looking in Ephesians has been titled Glorious Grace. We've been looking at these, these massive themes of God's grace that have been unpacked in Ephesians chapter 1 already. And now this morning, we're looking at a prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians. And hopefully going to learn a lot from that together. I want to think for a moment about what it means to know someone. Or to know something. Kind of about a relationship, okay? There is a way to know someone where you have the correct information about them, but you are personally distant. Right? That's knowing about someone. I was curious, actually, and I put into the search engine on my computer, uh, joining a fan club, just that simple statement. Um, And a celebrity's name popped up that I knew nothing about, but I knew, like, this person's really famous. And I immediately saw how to join their fan club. $24.99 a year. You get a t-shirt, a welcome letter from Carrie Underwood. (laughs) It just popped up. I don't even really know who she is. You get playing cards. You get to be part of the online forum of the fan club. You get pre-sale access to merch and tickets. And here's the thing I was thinking. I mean, I was right there with my credit card. I mean, I wasn't going to do it. I thought about it. I thought about it possibly as like sermon research, justification expense. But I was just like, I could do this right now. I don't know anything about this person. But I could be in that fan club. I've never listened that I know of to a song. I don't know them personally. But I could join this fan club and I could know or begin to learn a lot about them without knowing them. It's similar too, you know, like if you are moving to a new city, you might do a lot of research. You might look into the size, to the demographics. You might try to really get to know the history. And so you know a lot about that city, but you've never lived there. That's a way of knowing someone. A way of knowing something. But there's another way, right? There's another extreme, and really I think I'm just trying to start with these two extremes. There's another way, and it's a way where you're personally close, but perhaps shallow, simple, and sentimental in your actual relationship. I have friends that that have smartphones, iPhones, but they don't want to be able to go on the internet all the time. And so among some of my friends, there's this whole thing of like turning your iPhone that's a smartphone into a dumb phone. Because, you know, it could lead you to waste your time or whatever. And so I'm thinking about that. You know, you have this computer in your pocket. You have this smartphone in your pocket. You're with it all the time. It's in your hand. It's in your pocket. It's touching you almost all the time. And yet, 
because you have chosen to make it a dumb phone, you have what I think would be fair to say a pretty simple relationship with it. Hardly engaging into any of the potential of it. Shallow relationship. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. It might be a good idea, but a sentimental relationship. No apps, just a dumb phone. So there's these two ways of knowing, right? And I'm just talking about these two extremes. You can, you know, have all the correct info, knowing about, but be personally distant. Or you can be personally close, very close, but shallow, simple, sentimental with your knowledge about that person or thing. Many Christians have a relationship with God that is only like one of these two extremes. Knowing a lot about God, theology, facts, information, or, but being personally distant, or having personal experience, trusting the Lord to get you through things, but not really, and sometimes being very proud of not really knowing that much about who God is or who he has revealed himself to be. You know, the knowledge of God. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, you say, you're right. I don't want it to be that way. Well, good. But just so you know, regardless of what you want, God doesn't want it to be that way. He wants it to be better than that, more than we ever would want it to be better than that. And that is what this passage is about this morning. That is what Paul's prayer is about this morning, that we would be people who have both. Both a practical and personal experience with God, but also a biblical and accurate knowledge of who God is and all of who he has revealed himself to be in Scripture. That's where we're going. That's the passage we're looking at, verse 17 through 23. And so we'll break it down uh, together this morning. But let me just uh, tell you there are two points. Let me read to you uh, the passage, and then we'll get into the first point. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 17 And we're picking up in a prayer that Paul's praying. So verse 15 and 16 are the first part of his prayer. And he continues, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
God, we thank you this morning for the book of Ephesians. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church family. Lord, to experience the the fullness of what it means to be a church family, to see little children being dedicated to you, uh, to be the multi-generational body of Christ, to sing about how you are our provider. Lord, we just pray you would illuminate the truths set forth in your word to us this morning. Lord, we are unmotivated often. We are weary often. Lord, we need the energizing of your Holy Spirit this morning that the seed of your word might find good soil in our hearts. And so that is our prayer and our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first point from verse 17 and 18 is this. Know God practically and biblically. Not just practically, not just biblically and accurately, but know God practically and biblically. That's the point. And you could add here to this point the imperative. I must know God practically and biblically. And so this comes from verse 17. I'll read it again just to get us there in the right frame of mind for this first point. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Think about it. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. He's, this is a Spirit of God-inspired prayer in the Bible, a prayer. What do you do with that? What do you do when someone comes up to you and says, hey, here's how I'm praying for you, and it's someone you respect? You, you, you take a mental note. You're like, all right, like, that's how they're praying for me. That's maybe how I should be growing. That's like informative to the direction that I should be taking. Someone says to you, I go before God in prayer every day that you would. You're like listening, right? And then it's like inspired scripture. Then you're really listening. Remember that God is moving Paul's pen here. As we see Paul's desire for the Christians at Ephesus expressed through this prayer, we are seeing unmistakably God's will for you and me. The question in verse 17 is interesting because he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's almost like he's making sure, like what God are you talking about here, Paul? And he's like, oh, right, in my prayer, let me answer that. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 17 is amazing. It mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit just in this verse. Paul is praying to and seeking answer to prayer from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. The Bible teaches that there is only one God. One God in essence. And the Bible also teaches clearly that there are three persons who are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is 
what many call the doctrine of the Trinity. There are some Jehovah's Witnesses, Arians before them, who overemphasize God's oneness and read a passage like this to be saying, oh, look, see, Jesus has a God that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that in the verse? Oh, look, see, Jesus has a God. Therefore, this verse is teaching that Jesus isn't himself actually fully God. Huh. However, in the next line, there's a clarifying and helpful statement where it says the Father of glory. Paul is showing here, his point here, contrary to the false teaching of some, his point is not the non-deity or the lesser deity of Jesus. Rather, he's highlighting the Father's glorious position in relationship to the Son within the Trinity. It is to the glorious Father that Paul is praying. Through the Son, by the Spirit. So what is he praying for? What does it say? Do you see it here? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So let's break this down, because this is the prayer request. This is what we need to see. So... He's praying that you'll get the spirit of, all right? Now, some translations, um, for example, the New American Standard translation, which is kind of accepted as the most literal translation, um, have lowercase spirit here, all right? Um, So it would be like in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, So he's referring to an attitude, a disposition, an orientation, an air about somebody, a spirit, right? And then as you see in this translation, the English Standard Version, it's capital S, spirit. So it's the Holy Spirit. Listen, this is not a make or break verse in the Bible where we're going to lose our faith if we translate it this way or that way. It's It's not that. It's not that. I think that it's lowercase spirit. I think that's the best understanding here. And so I think he's saying, listen, I'm praying that you would have a spirit about you, an attitude about you, a, a vibe, right? I'm praying that you would have an orientation in your life of, there's two ofs. Do you see it in the verse? There's two ofs of two things. What are they? The first one, a spirit of, do you see it? Wisdom. Wisdom, the Greek word sophia, it means skilled, practicality, it means applied knowledge, truth, useful truth. This is why the point is, I must know God practically and biblically. I want you, Paul says, I'm praying that you will have a spirit of wisdom of, in the knowledge of God. I'm praying that you will have a practical and personal relationship in your knowledge of God. That it will be real, that it will be personal, it will be something that makes a real difference in your life, not just information. Then he says, I'm praying that you'll have a spirit of 
wisdom, but then he says of something else. What does he say? He says of revelation. Of revelation. And both the wisdom and the revelation plug into knowledge of him. So we'll bring it all together. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, practical, and revelation, biblical, knowledge of him. Revelation is accurate and true divine disclosure from the Bible. All of this leads to an intense and profound and real knowledge of God. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor who's passed away, was a pastor for a long time in Philadelphia, was once asked, what is the greatest need facing Christians today? And he immediately answered, thinking about this verse, that they know God. The knowledge of God. And it sounds cliche, but the truth is that many of us are content for much less than that a sentimental and simple and shallow sort of nominal by name only form of Christianity. Many of us are content with that, and that is clearly not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about something so much deeper. And then many others of us are content for knowledge about God, but not real and true personal knowledge of God. So the greatest need in the church, if we could even just summarize this prayer request, it's that the first person of the divine trinity that God the Father would bestow on us, would give as a gift, like a present, like a birthday present, would bestow on us an intense knowledge of him that is eminently and personally practical and transcendently true accurate, and biblical. Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Why is this prayer here? Because people naturally drift away from this solid, practical, and biblical, and real relationship with God. Even the Ephesians, who all of those things that he said in Ephesians 1 are true of, even them and us too, we naturally drift away from this one way or the other. It's amazing, really, that this chapter, Ephesians 1, with everything that it teaches about the sovereignty of God, being chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, you know, all the things about predestination that were in Ephesians chapter 1 that we saw before, is also a chapter with a really long prayer in it. A lot of times, people that are real big on sovereignty and theology aren't very prayerful. And sometimes people that are really prayerful aren't very doctrinal. But Ephesians chapter 1 gives us this vision of the true Christian life that is practical and biblical in our knowledge of God. Okay, 
Let's look at the beginning of verse 18 before we change to point two, because there's a phrase here that I think is one you've heard before. I want to unpack it. What does it say? It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I want to spend a moment thinking about this this morning. What is this not saying, i.e. the song that you know? What is it saying? And what could it be implying? Just quickly, just some reflections on this. So again, I want to read it. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Even as I read that, some of you are already singing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. Shining in the light of your glory. <laughs> Pour out your spirit and love. All right. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I mean, for sure that song had to have been written based off this verse. I don't know for sure, but I mean, I think for sure. And yet I don't think that song accurately is interpreting the verse. After studying it this week and thinking more about it, what does he say? He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you. The song implies, because it's Christians singing the song, and it implies that if we sing it loud enough and with enough sincerity and passion that God will just peel open our eyes a little bit and we can see him. Right? We're already Christians, but if we'll just sing, open the eyes of our hearts, then God will open our eyes more and we'll be like seeing him. Shining in the light of his glory. High and lifted up. And yet I don't think that's what the phrase is actually saying. What is it saying? The correct way, I think, to understand this verse, and let me say this, I don't actually think that that song is unhelpful. I, can't, I can think of a million songs more unhelpful that we would sing. I just don't think it's based off this verse. Maybe it was never intended to be. The correct understanding of this verse, though, is obvious, actually. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The English language gives it to us. He's saying, you already have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having had the eyes of your hearts already enlightened, the eyes of the heart being opened are what made you a believer in Jesus Christ. This is the essential first and foundational gospel step. It's not a second step that we try to sing our way toward. It must precede, not follow, gaining a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We must be enlightened to our state of fallenness before a holy God, apart from Christ. We must be enlightened to the person and work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
We, to become a Christian, must be enlightened to the call of God in His Word to turn from sin and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you see how this ought to be understood? I hope so. I believe it can be very encouraging if we have it straight and we meditate on it some. If you are a true Christian, then the eyes of your heart are open. They done been open. So look at the right things. See with the eyes of your heart and grow in practical and biblical knowledge of God. So what it's not saying is the song. What it is saying is the verse. But I was even thinking of more that it could be implying. I was thinking a lot about the human eye this week. You know, if you think about it, it's not so much that the eye even opens, right? The eyelid opens to let light in, to enlighten. The eye is a body part that lets light in and sends visual information by way of the optic nerve to the brain. And Paul uses and chooses this analogy as he talks about our hearts. You know, many animals, puppies for example, do not open their eyes until 10 to 14 days after being born. But humans miraculously open their eyes way before birth. Let me tell you about it. The eye begins forming at six weeks. And just in case you need to know this, especially you guys, uh, full-term pregnancy is 40 weeks. All right. So at six weeks, the eye begins forming. The cornea, the pupil, the iris, the retina, they begin forming at week seven. The tear ducts begin forming at week eight. (laughs) The eyelids begin forming at week 10. The eyelids open and close, which is blinking, at week 27. The human eye can track color at week 34. Do you know what color it is? It's red because that's the color of the inside of the uterus. And so everyone's first color that they saw and that they knew was red. The human eye is amazing. You know, and I don't want to press this too far and say more than the text is teaching, and I fear I've already done that, honestly. But if if I were to tell you this morning, hey, I want you to listen to what I'm saying with your heart. What am I saying? I'm telling you to hear and to feel something. Am I not? So similarly, if I tell you, or if Paul were to tell you and I, I want you to see what I'm talking about with the eyes of your heart. Not just your normal eyes. Then could it be that he's telling you, you need to see and feel this truth. Just some facts. You have a heart and you have eyes, but your heart actually does not have eyes. 
<laughs> got, those on, got those facts online this week. <laughs> These are both parts of you, body parts. The only real connection that scientists have found between the eyes and the heart is through the tear ducts, crying. We have three types of tears. The tear ducts, again, were formed at week eight. There are basal tears, which are routine. They're constantly happening just to keep our eyes moist and safe. There are reflex tears, which happen when something is sensed like an onion and they come to protect you. And then the third kind of tear, which is called emotional tears. And what is happening when you cry tears of emotion is the emotional part of the brain, the hypothalamus, sends transmitters to the tear ducts, which were formed at week eight. And scientists do not even know why it happens. It has no physical purpose. It's not protecting you from anything in the way that the other two kinds of tears are. Perhaps it makes sense more with babies because it's a way for them before they can use words and language to communicate how they're feeling. So it makes sense with babies. But why doesn't it stop? Once we're able to use higher ways of communicating how we're doing. Scientists don't know. Maybe it's to connect. Maybe it's to feel better because it's actually scientifically proven that a good cry makes you feel better. We don't really know. But the reason I was thinking about this is it's almost like scientifically speaking, the closest thing to having the eyes of your heart opened may be to cry. Maybe, but not definitely. And it's not the main point of the text. And I want to be real open about that. But maybe Paul is saying to us, you having wept over your salvation, keep growing in that intense knowledge of God that is both practical and biblical. And so that leads to the second point, which is going to be brief. I must know God practically and biblically in order to experience salvation deeply. To really experience your salvation deeply. Not to know a lot about your salvation or about God. Not to have a sort of practical experience of your salvation that's sentimental and never really goes deep in your knowledge of who God is. I must know God practically and biblically in order to experience salvation deeply. And there are three components of salvation that Paul lays out here. The hope of our salvation, the riches of our salvation, and the power of God that is toward us through our salvation. And so what I want to do this morning as we um, sort of dive into point two but don't quite finish it 
is I want to read to you this passage. I want you to look for those three components of our salvation that God wants us to more deeply experience. We're going to get more into it next Sunday. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Why is he praying all of this? Why is he praying that we have practical and biblical knowledge of God, having had the eyes of our hearts enlightened or opened? He tells us that we may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And at the end of verse 19, as Paul is thinking about how God's power is toward him and toward the Ephesians and toward us as believers, that the power of God is toward us. He just goes into verse 20 and 23 and he just can't help himself thinking and reflecting on this might of God. He says in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of of him who fills all in all. We're going to look more at verse 18 through 23 when we come back together next Sunday. But until then, I want to close by giving you four practical ways to grow, to have a knowledge of God that is practical and biblical, as we've been talking about this morning. And the first one is, is heart illumination to the gospel. That, that a light switch that you actually cannot reach with your hand might be turned on by God such that you might see the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel. And so this is not really a step that you can kind of muster up, but it's one to pray for. Heart illumination to the gospel. Number two, prayerful dependence upon God. Hopefully we don't miss that in this passage this morning, but Paul is not so much telling them to do this. He's saying, I'm praying that God will give this to you. Because a deep and meaningful, practical and biblical relationship with our Creator is a gift. So prayerful dependence for that gift. Number three, authentic fellowship. Don't miss in verse 17 that God is in eternal community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what it looks like to be full 
human and to really reflect the image of God is for us also to be in community. And all use in this prayer are all use. He's saying you all. He's saying I want you all to know God practically and biblically. And so don't miss the importance of authentic fellowship as a step that we can take to grow. And lastly, God's word. God's word is that spirit of revelation, that divine disclosure of who God is and what he's done. And we need regular, habitual exposure to the voice of God in our lives to drown out the many other competing voices. Heart illumination, prayerful dependence, authentic fellowship, and God's word. And so let me close us in prayer and invite the, the worship team to come back and lead us in a song. If you'll bow with me.